It's time to build your momentum to start off your new year right with our evidence-based psychology and yoga podcast delivered directly to your earbuds five days a week. That's right. We are going to be replaying 60 of our top episodes five days a week. So we're going to be featuring expert insights, practical tips that will help you achieve your mental and physical wellness goals. From reducing anxiety and stress to improving your focus and concentration, the Wisdom for Wellbeing Momentum Season is the perfect companion for your yoga, mindfulness practices, and life. So tune in during your commute, while you're walking your dog, or while you're cleaning your kitchen to dive into the latest research and explore the powerful connection between your brain, body, and your best life. I'm looking forward to being in your earbuds pretty much daily as we kickstart your 2023 journey towards a happier, healthier, and more balanced you. You know, body image inflexibility is when the result, the response to our experience of our body is to make our life smaller, to move away from it, to try, to try and um, squeeze it down, shove it out, avoid it, delay it, where your body becomes, your body experience, not your body itself even, becomes really important and, and starts to dominate your functioning. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Today on Wisdom for Wellbeing, I'm joined by Dr. Emily K. Sandoz. Dr. Sandoz is the Emma Louise LeBlanc Berguiers Borsef Endowed Professor of Social Sciences in the Psychology Department at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Emily is the director of the Louisiana Contextual Science Research Group and the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science. She has co-authored three books on acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT, for struggles with eating and body image, along with chapters and journal articles on ACT, relational flame theory, values, the therapeutic relationship, and psychological flexibility. Emily has led more than 70 professional training workshops around the world and serves as a peer-reviewed ACT trainer. She also practices as a clinical psychologist, focusing on clinical behavioral analysis of body-related difficulties. I think that this conversation that we have with Emily here today is incredibly important to all of us. As we know, we live in a very hyper-image-focused society where the vast majority of women are unhappy with their bodies. Increasingly, men are also reporting dissatisfaction and disordered eating. Our bodies are the place where we live, and ultimately, it is our bodies that allow us to live our lives. So perhaps not surprisingly, alongside of this, there is a big movement for body positivity. But today's episode is not that. Dr. Sandus actually shares some really insightful wisdom about why body positivity is not the answer to body-related difficulties. And, in fact, how body positivity can actually be harmful if this is an area where you're experiencing struggles. 
No doubt you will find this conversation as informative and as helpful as I did. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce you to Dr. Sandoz. So welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with me on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you, Caitlin, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I am so excited about our conversation. So you are an expert in, you know, body image and I guess, you know, challenges individuals might have with eating generally, as well as an expert in something called acceptance and commitment therapy um, and relational frame theory, which you'll be able to define for our listeners. <laughs> but just to get things started, body image is something that a lot of people would identify with. It's very topical right now. I wonder if we could start there and if you might be able to describe what body image is. Yeah, sure. The thing that's most salient to people, of course, is kind of how they see their bodies, how they imagine their appearance. And so most people, if you say body image, they hear that word image and they think, you know, appearance or how I experience my appearance. Um, Fortunately, with the leadership of um, Dr. Thomas Cash over the past probably decade, we've really been expanding what we mean by body image to include not just how you appear, uh, how you appear or how you imagine you appear, but really that entire experience of body image. So all of the, the thoughts that you have about your body, the body related memories, um, even you know hopes and dreams related to the body, uh, feelings about your body, even physical sensations, you know, including being able to visualize or see the body, but also physical sensations um, like, you know, how your clothing feels on your body or uh, the, the level of soreness in your muscles. or So really that entire experience, multifaceted experience, including anything you can um, perceive, anything you think, um, anything you feel. Um, and then also included in body image is how you respond to all of those, the kind of overt outwardly observable behaviors that you engage in, um, in response to that whole experience. That's an incredibly rich picture of body image when I think, you know, in the media we hear body image and it's automatically the negative way that one might perceive their body. This is a much more in-depth description of what body image is for an individual. And it highlights there's so many layers and multifaceted, as you said. There really are. And the important thing about that is that any one of those areas can become disrupted. So any okay. one of those areas, we can be problematic. And that's kind of how we've ended up expanding how we think about body image. So we might notice somebody that looks just as impaired, they're struggling just as much, but it really doesn't have to do with something like, um, you know, feeling like they're overweight um, or seeing their body shape as being not beautiful. It could have something to do with their functioning actually, or their medical history, or um, a past sexual abuse experience that really harmed how they experience and react to their bodies. Okay, that well, that just takes it down so many different tracks, doesn't it? That people showing up saying, you know, they're struggling with body image, or you know, a therapist, an expert like you, maybe identifying that that's an area of struggle. That the actual cause and the individual's experience can be so different. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I think the, uh, the everyday experience that most people end up um, coming in with is often not, they're often not most vocal about the body part. Um, so what I've found in my practice, I've really had to be expansive in how I describe it so that my clients understand what it is that, that I do. Um, you know, specifically what I say is I help people to live in peace with their bodies. Um, <laughs> emphasizing that there are all these different ways that you could live not in peace with your body. Um, you know, so a lot of times when people come, they might lead um, initially, if it wasn't for that, they might lead with something like, you know, I'm feeling depressed or I feel insecure or it's social anxiety. But when we dig in, it's all really body related. It's all about that kind of nexus of the body experience and how that, that influences their life. Well, that's a really interesting point because I wanted to actually lead into what, what is this, you know, experience of challenges with body image? What is that related to? And you mentioned that, you know, it could be related to social anxiety or depression. What, what does the research suggest? What could you share with us? Oh, goodness. Yeah, there are a number of, um, of comorbidities. I mean, really across the board in almost every domain of, of psychological dysfunction, you have kind of a brand that's body related. So we could have someone that has a um, predominantly their biggest problem is something like major depressive disorder or, or bipolar disorder. But somewhere along the way, their body gets tangled up in that. So the thoughts that are the sort of depressing thoughts that that are part of uh, you know their depression are body related. They might be they might be more expansive, and the disruption might be more expansive. But where they really um, you know suffer is around the body, and it's really in almost every um, almost every sort of uh, you know disorder, almost every psychological disorder. There's the possibility of that. Now, some of the highest rates you know we see um, overlapping with body image would be, of course, eating disorders, um, and then after that, uh, body Body dysmorphic disorder, which is sort of a body image disorder. Would you mind um, sharing, just in case um, the listener is not familiar with that term, what, what body dysmorphic disorder um, is? When I talk about body dysmorphic disorder, um, so this would be when my experience of my body um, usually focused on that, that visible difference, that flaw, imagined flaw, or um, you know, real flaw that's kind of over-enhanced um, and, uh, and amplified in the person's imagination, that that flaw, that single sort of bit of the body experience becomes sort of so big in somebody's um, you know, thoughts and their feelings um, in their experience of not just their body, but really their themselves and their world, um, that, that that negative uh, experience of the body really takes over. And when we say takes over, we mean it interrupts their functioning. So their efforts to manage that flaw, you know, to hide it, to change it, um, their efforts to manage that end up disrupting work or school, you know, relationships, even physical health. So folks doing things like not getting into intimate relationships or um, seeking repeated surgeries to address things that nobody else in their life sees as a flaw, but to them, completely dominates their entire sense of who they are, of how they're received, um, really of, of even small things like good days and bad days um, are all about yeah. that flaw. So really where it takes over. Um, so that would be, you know, one category. But again, we see those, those body image threads in a number of different diagnoses and a number of different patterns of suffering, even if they're not you know, diagnosable. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I guess the language around patterns of suffering is important because that's what comes, comes down to getting in the way of people's lives, isn't it? Exactly. So, so, you know, some people emphasize certainly um, the negativity um, or the rationality of the experience of the body. So when some folks look at body image and say, okay, how does it get messed up? You know, how does it contribute to suffering? Some folks really focus on how accurate, for example, that perception is of the body or, or how much pain kind of comes when you think about your body or, or how um, appropriate your thoughts are, you know, how, how true they are, rational they are. Um, you know, other folks really focus on the other end um, more so, which is how does all that stuff really impact you? You know, maybe it's not as important to focus on we really need to change this these negative thoughts to positive thoughts, or we really need to get you accurately perceiving yourself. Um, but instead, um, focusing on how about you are able to engage your relationships, your work, your life, your health, your body itself um, at sort of the highest, most effective level, no matter what your thoughts and feelings are saying. Uh, this is, I mean, it leads into, because the title of one of your books is Living with Your Body and Other Things You Hate, <laughs> which I think this living bit is key, that it's this idea of how you live a life with these thoughts that, you know, might be might be judged as positive or negative, neutral or, or whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah, that living piece is so big. I mean, that's what I want for, you know, like I said, what I want for my clients is living in peace and meaning um, with yeah. their bodies. And both of those pieces really being important, emphasizing, you know, and other stuff you hate, um, that it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily in the cards for all of us to look in the mirror and go, wow, I'm loving what I'm seeing. It's not always in the cards for all of us to have the physical sensations going on in our bodies and saying, this feels great. You know, there are times when it's, it's really important, for example, to notice that I'm feeling really crummy inside and to be able to address that. There's times that it's really important for me to go, this is not what I need to look like today when I'm going to this professional event. Um, and, you know, not only are those, um, those experiences we might sometimes call negative, um, sometimes label as negative, not only are they sometimes like quite important, um, but they, they're not easily uh, shed. You know, it's, it's not particularly easy to um, go in and just directly change these things in a way that impacts that degree of, um, of them improving your, of them impacting your life. So, you know, rather than hoping that if we change the thoughts and feelings about the body, rather than hoping that those changes will then result in behavioral changes, you know, we can actually go in and change the way right away that people are, are relating to their bodies, kind of the relationship that they're having with their body. And that's the emphasis in living. Um, you know, what I really wanted was for people to be able to have their full life Life, uh, regardless of how they're feeling about their bodies that day. So the behavioral changes is like the things that someone would do on a day-to-day -day basis, how they're actually living their life, um, which I think will lead us down the course of talking about what guides that and, and how we decide what's important, what we want to be doing with our day. But just before we go there, you know, we kind of were alluding to that there might be like this perceived positive or negative relationship with the body. And there is a lot of media and movement around, you know, body positivity, in, um, like initiatives and body neutrality. And I guess 
guess, could you kind of maybe share your thoughts on these movements and how, how this way of working with the body that you're talking about, about how we actually live and find peace, how they link together? Sure, sure. You know, I think in general, um, everybody would love, when you think about somebody you love, you would love to just pump their life full of positive experiences, right? I mean, that's, that's sure, that's what we want for ourselves, that's what we want for the people in our lives, that's what we want for our clients, certainly. Um, and um, there's this funny thing that happens, and I'll speak specifically about um, body positivity, for example. Like, let's say, um, let's just imagine that I am not always 100% in love with my body, right? Let's just, <laughs> Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> let's imagine um, that some days I look in the mirror and there's these weird sort of bumps that I don't know where they came from. And that's like sort of stressful. And I, uh, I was going to wear this shirt with sort of an open collar and, oh, that's going to look gross. And I don't know what people will think. And sort of in that moment, right, I'm having all of these experiences. I'm, I'm thinking about what I have to do that day. I'm noticing what I was going to wear. I'm, you know, obsessively looking in the mirror at these bumps. Like even that little acute experience, um, you know, something like the Bozzy body positivity movement would say um, that those experiences are problematic in and of themselves. So me looking at the skin and going like, oh, that looks gross. You know, me having to stress over it, uh, me imagining what I'm going to wear, that all of that part, all that inside stuff that I'm doing, all of that pain that I'm experiencing, that that is the problem. And, and while um, sort of authors of this movement, I think mental health professionals, that really advocate for posit body positivity wouldn't necessarily support this. The, the impact in the cultural movement has ended up with sort of you know, shame <laughs> around not feeling positive. Yeah. So something like, you know, oh, I have this gross rash on my shoulders, you know, that feels terrible. You know, the body positive movement might say something like, I'm wrong for feeling bad about that. And like, what I need to do is to have positive thoughts about, you know, my body in that moment. Um, you know, that is, uh, that has a couple of, a couple of downsides. Um, you know, one is in all that time that I could be navigating what I'm going to wear instead, um, you know, looking on the internet and seeing if I need to go to the dermatologist. Um, <laughs> Or maybe like cleaning and applying some ointment, I mean, whatever it is, instead of doing that, I'm instead looking inside going, why am I being so mean to myself? Why am I having these bad thoughts about my body? Why am I having this pain? I shouldn't be having that. Um, not engaging my life effectively. So it's a second you know, layer that's happening. <laughs> Absolutely. And this other layer of really what I see as more suffering is in my world, the part that where it goes from pain to suffering is the part where pain starts impacting life. Once pain starts impacting my ability to engage my life, that is what I call suffering. So any model that gets me looking inside doing more suffering you know, I'm struggling with. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that's really the best way to move forward. You know, instead, the alternative would be something like a body image flexibility model or a body flexibility model. And in this model, based on a, a broader sort of model of psychological flexibility as, as uh, well-being, um, the, the more narrow model of body image flexibility or body flexibility suggests that 
you know, it might not matter so much what those initial thoughts and feelings are if what we have is an opportunity, um, whether they're positive or negative, is an opportunity to consider what's really meaningful and important in that moment and orient towards that, regardless of the thoughts and feelings that are coming up. You know, in my, my little sort of acute example of, you know, waking up and having a, a skin, my skin be messed up, it might be something like not, um, am I able to, to think positively about my rash and instead, uh, you know, instead um, you know, tell myself how beautiful I am or something like that. Um, and if that doesn't work, I'm kind of stuck. You know, instead of that, it might be something like, okay, what's most important? Well, what I'm thinking about most, what's biggest in my world right now today is, um, you know, this job talk that I have to do. I have to go to work. I have to do a presentation. And what's most meaningful to me about that presentation um, is that I'm talking to these incoming students and their parents. And I really want to give them a good sense of what it is that we're doing here. And that's it too. And if there's anything else that's more important, then maybe it's like checking this out and seeing if it goes away. So why don't I, um, you know, decide what's, uh, what I need to do in preparation for that two o'clock talk and then see if it's gone after that and maybe go to the doctor or whatever it is uh, following that, um, that meeting. The orientation is all around, you know, what am, yes, what am I experiencing um, as part of it, um, but also then taking that experience as just part of the big mix of everything else that's going on um, and orienting towards what matters most and taking action towards what matters most. Okay, so there's there's a few amazing points in there, um, Emily. So you talked about orientating and before we kind of highlighted that getting clear on what makes life worth living and values was something that we might want to come back to. And you also talked about taking action, which plays in so beautifully to perhaps describing what act um, or acceptance and commitment therapy actually is. Would you mind just giving us a brief overview for anyone who maybe hasn't heard of this um, amazing model before? Sure. Um, and, and everybody has different words that they put around it. Yeah. But to me, um, when I describe acceptance and commitment therapy, um, what I say is that ACT is about helping people to live their lives meaningfully, um, regardless of the thoughts and feelings that they're experiencing. And the way that we do that is helping people to build out all of their skills in the presence of those difficult thoughts and feelings. Um, sometimes people call it a mindfulness and acceptance-based therapy or, or um, let me back up, a mindfulness, acceptance, and values-based therapy. And you mentioned values a couple of times. Um, the mindfulness and acceptance piece is sort of instead of um, – trying to directly intervene on the thoughts and feelings that I'm having, trying to, to change those and making that internal stuff my focus with the only response I have to it being to change it. Instead of doing that, um, we can practice instead you know, noticing it, um, recognizing um, exceptions, kind of letting the rest of the world fill in as well, um, and then um, taking that action and instead of it, my only response to pain and suffering being about either changing it, um, making it go away, instead of that being my only response, having a whole litany of responses I can have, that noticing, you know, that understanding, and then off, off also things like 
orienting towards things that I care about, um, noticing what is at stake in this moment that's meaningful and what opportunities I have to act in service of that. In addition, we also include things like um, how we relate to other humans, you know, specifically, um, and how we understand our own identity. So really recognizing that not only not only is body image, you know, large and multifaceted, but that flexibility model, because it emphasizes having all of those choices for ways to respond in the presence of pain, that that's also a really multifaceted model. You know, that when we say flexibility, we're referring to the flexibility involved in, in choice, in being able to have pain and still have a choice as to how we're going to move forward. That's a really empowering model to be in, you know, as you said, in a, in a moment of pain and to still have a choice to be able to orientate towards something that you care about, that you value. And in your example, you know, noticing whatever was going on with your skin, the blotches, and then actually taking that holding space for that and going, well, what do I have today that is most important for me that both of these things can exist in consort? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it's scalable. I mean, one of the things that's really lovely about this is, you know, my silly little example of a a 10 minute experience in the bathroom, you know, scales all the way to something like, um, you know, the experience of somebody that has struggled with um, anorexic type patterns for Mm -hmm. 10 years. You know, so somebody that struggles to maintain a a normal, healthy weight um, that, you know, for, for whom every episode of eating every time around food is incredibly painful and stressful. Someone for whom um, the idea of eating and food and the body impacts literally every aspect of their life from relationships to work, you know, to personal um, accomplishments and hobbies, you know, even at that level, it's the same exact model. You know, it's okay. A painful thing is present. Let me pause. Let me notice that. Let me recognize what my mind is doing here you know let me let me let that experience fill in along with everything else going on around me all of the other you know uh uh, since since five sense experiences that are happening things that i'm seeing feeling smelling tasting um also all the other internal experiences that i'm having you know what are other thoughts and feelings that are coming up right now and then taking filtering all of that through that question, you know, what is it that matters most? What is it that I, I care most about in this moment? And then how do I take action consistent with that? So you can you can almost break down the model as like, let the whole world fill in, you know, notice that your world is shutting down, notice the moment of inflexibility, you know, let the rest of your world fit in, fill in so that you know what you're working with. That's the mindfulness piece. And then orient to what you care about and take action. And that's the sort of value use um, committed action piece. Yep. So the the what matters most is an individual's values and the committed action is where you decide, okay, well, this is what I'll do in this moment that is orientated towards my values, even though I'm having this painful experience. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we really emphasize, I mean, everybody kind of, you know, values is a word we use all the time to mean lots of different things. In this model, when we say values, we mean something really specific. You know, we mean um, a, a chosen sort of direction for your life that you can act in service of in any moment. So, you know, it could be when I'm uh, pumping gas, pumping petrol, you know, it could be when I'm walking my dog, it could be when I'm giving a presentation for work. It could be when I'm sitting with a client that in any moment, you know, physically, um, and then also, no matter what's showing up psychologically, whether I'm anxious or excited, um, whether I'm you know, literally in the middle of a panic attack or what my mentor used to call a dark night of the soul, you know, suffering existentially, that no matter what's going on outside of me or inside of me, that I am still able to act in service of this. You know, it's not a specific goal or a specific outcome. It's really a quality of action, really a quality of behavior. Something, you know, for me, one of my values that I really care about is being an extraordinary mother. That looks different depending on, you know, which kid I'm talking about is now when my daughter's 19 or 10 years ago when she was nine, you know, whether it's her that I'm speaking of or my son Jackson or my son Julio, you know, each of them needs something different from me as, as a mom. Each of them needs something different as they grow older, even from day to day. You know, some mornings uh, my kids like to be hurried and, and sort of comforted and sort of cared for some mornings it's mom back off <laughs> and being an extraordinary mom means figuring out what in that moment is going to really serve that quality of action and that's specific to me you know I, I really get to pick um, you know what my values are and what that looks like to me in any one moment. That's quite empowering that you're responding to the moment, you know, recognize, and I guess that's where the mindfulness, the awareness of the situation comes in that some mornings, you know, maybe doting and being more attentive might be kind of in alignment with that values. And at other mornings, backing off, responding to those cues is what's important. So having this sensitivity to notice what's happening in your environment. And you also highlighted, you know, that sometimes like experiencing anxiety or having a panic attack, Tech, that you can notice what's happening internally and still be taking action towards your values. Absolutely. And, and we just sort of insist on that, you know, and now it might not look the same one day in moments that I'm in a panic attack as in moments when I'm, you know, feeling grand, um, you know, it might look really different, but, but that values consistent action, that committed action, it is not actually about what it looks like. In fact, sometimes we'll say like, nobody could tell from the outside whether this is values consistent action for you or not. Um, I can give another example, you know, uh, it might be that, um, I have some really clear ideas about what being an extraordinary mom looks like. And when I'm under a lot of stress, it could be that I start performing those actions, but I'm not really present. I'm not really paying attention. You know, I might, I might uh, have a goal to spend 15 minutes with each of my kids talking one-on-one. Well, I might do that in a way that I could check the box off, but I really wasn't listening in an extraordinary way. I really wasn't responding in an extraordinary way. You know, I really wasn't um, being the mom that I want to be during those 15 minutes. So, you know, we really do, uh, for example, in my, uh, in my practice, you know, with my clients, you know, I really do um, it, 
expect and, and encourage and support, you know, them being able to orchestrate um, a sense of what it is their valued life would look like. And the important thing about this is that, you know, if we think of in any one moment, we can be moving away from something that's really painful or moving towards something that's meaningful. Oftentimes, moving away from the thing that's painful really means moving away from something that matters. You know, if I am not paying attention to something that my kid's trying to tell me, if I'm, you know, half listening and giving a little laugh here and there when it seems like they need a joke, you know, likely what's happening is that I'm preoccupied with something else. You know, there's something in my experience that rather than making note of it and saying, oh, Jackson's talking to me. He's what's most important right now. I'm struggling. You know, how am I going to handle that email issue? I don't know. I could respond. Maybe I should just let it lie. You know, there's something that I'm not willing to just sort of let be so that I can be with my son in that moment. Um, that would be an example of in flexibility, um, psychological inflexibility. Now, related to the body, it's the same model. The only difference is that the suffering, the hard part, the hard stuff that we're most interested in is body-related hard stuff. The values and commitment side is really the same. You know, my values, I don't have to have specific body-related values but of course, how I relate to my body, how I interact with my body is going to impact any of my values. Like we said, we call it a body image dysfunction when it's impacting stuff, when it's interfering with our work, with our relationships, with our education, with our, our personal health and habits. And you kind of led into there, um, Emily, about the idea of body image inflexibility. So we've been talking about flexibility and how you can move towards and orientate towards your values. Could you just give us an overview of what body image inflexibility is? Because I imagine that's something that a lot of listeners will identify with at certain points in their life, you know, all of us probably. Right. I know. Absolutely. So body image inflexibility, just like the rest of the model, is really silent on the nature of the body experience, right? Of, of the thoughts and the specific thoughts, feelings, sensations that are comprising the body uh, experience or the body image. Um, what body image inflexibility emphasizes is how we respond to that. So when we are not um, openly experiencing that and orienting towards what we care about in the moment, we're often doing the opposite. We are trying to get away from the body experience. We are, you know, shoving the thought out of our mind. We are covering our body physically. We're checking in the mirror over and over again to make sure that that fix, you know, where I hid my rash or whatever, where that, that, that fix is holding up. Um, we're asking other people for reassurance. We're avoiding relationships or locker rooms. We're not starting that exercise program that we keep putting on our New Year's resolution because what are the people in the gym going to think, you know, when I show up in my tank top where you can see my upper arms, you know, body image inflexibility is when the result, the response to our experience of our body is to make our life smaller, to move away from it, to try, to try and um, squeeze it down, shove it out, avoid it, delay it, where your body becomes, your body experience, not your body itself even, becomes really important and, and starts to dominate your functioning. You know, when you're, you're, um, you're, 
kid might be available, your work might be available, an awesome hobby might be available, and you're sitting there, you know, messing with your body experience, trying desperately to change it. Um, and that's where I get, um, you know, that's where I start to get worried about how body positivity can sometimes seep into inflexibility. You know, because ours is a functional model, it's not the contents, you know, of your body experience that are important, it's how it works. Um, that emphasis on the contents could sometimes mean at all cost. It could mean seek body positivity, even if it means avoiding situations where you feel bad about your body. Seek positive body positivity, even when it means, you know, ignoring your child so you can talk to yourself about how good your body looks today or, or whatever it is. Okay, so that's where you're talking about your world getting smaller. It becomes very, very focused and preoccupied on the body and that there could be this layering of the body positivity movement where you're hyper-focused to providing that validation or affirmations around feeling good about your body at the expense of like holding the pain that you could you could have, you know, different thoughts or feelings and still being able to engage in the things that matter, you know, like going to the gym or talking to your child. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's whatever it is that matters to you. Yeah. you know, and I, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that um, it's bad to want to feel positively about your body or that, um, you know, being, uh, being positive is problematic or even that, that supporting other people in, you know, positive um, experiences of their body or is, is bad somehow. You know, really what we're saying is like, maybe we could just lose the whole negative positive thing. You know, maybe it's just that some of your body experiences you really want and you crave and you go out and seek and some of your body experiences you're kind of stuck with. And those ones that you're stuck with, you can be stuck with them without them sticking you, you know, without you being stuck in your life um, when they are around you know I want I want people's body experiences to be able to fluctuate naturally the way that everything else in your life does and um, in their action in their life the sort of purpose or missions of their life the activities of their life to persist with all that stuff kind of being in the background like weather yeah. Oh, that's a really lovely example because it, it highlights that there's this wide range of body experiences too. So it's kind of acknowledging that model you spoke to earlier of body image being multifaceted and multilayered, that it doesn't have to be one domain. Um, and I guess in talking about all of this, you know, in, in one of your books, I believe it is in the living with your body and other things you hate, you share this story of a little girl who, you know, decides that she has to go up and get changed into something else because, you know, she doesn't like the way she looks or what she was wearing looks funny. Could you maybe share a little bit about how body image might be, you know, learned from an early age and just, I know this would be a broad topic, but a little bit about the cultural context so we can be mindful of it and aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, who's done really great work around this, I think, is, um, is uh, Nezeroglu. So Fuga Nezeroglu. Um, I can put that in the show notes for the listeners. <laughs> okay, yeah, super. Um, has done some really great work around this. And uh, in her work, in, in one of her pieces, she provides an example that I think is really lovely. Um, she talks about a little girl growing up and playing the piano and just playing really expertly at a recital 
smile and then coming down into the audience and her parents saying, you were the cutest little girl up there. Um, not commenting on her piano playing or, you know, her poise or that she looked, you know, she really, she really did a great job, even though she felt nervous, she really must have been kind to herself with that anxiety, you know, instead of any of that, the comment being on the way that she looked on her body. Um, and, you know, one of the things, the reason why I love that example is because it's easy for everybody to think of how if when you were growing up, you were told that you were ugly or that, you know, you were ineffective physically, um, if you were always falling behind in gym or, or called fat or any of these sort of, um, you know, negative experiences, it's easy to imagine how that could result in body image inflexibility, how that could make, you know, your experience of your body really dominate your world and squeeze it down and limit it. Um, what people don't always realize is that pop, quote unquote positive experiences of your body can, can do very similar things things, you know, to the extent that, um, that we relate to our children, for example, in terms of their body, to the extent to in the extent to which we conflate their identities with their bodies, you know, we are making it to where uh, their body signals access to good or bad stuff, where the body is a really important thing to pay attention to. And my thoughts and feelings of my body are important to pay attention to, because that's how I know if for example, mommy's going to be waiting in the audience with a big hug and kiss. Or, you know, what if I got up and played perfectly, but I wasn't the cutest little girl up there. Um, so pairing, you know, things like affection, things like um, access to peers, things like, um, you know, performance in academic domains, you know, pairing those down to, to, uh, to bodies, <laughs> um, you know, to, to physical appearance or, or any other aspect of the body, um, you know, I think really limits people's experiences and makes it to where their suffering ends up body related. And, and let me say a little bit about what I mean by that. You know, sometimes it's hard for folks who don't struggle with body stuff to kind of understand um, how it is that that happens or how it is that that becomes the focus of, of folks' distress. Um, and sometimes even when folks do, they're surprised that they've kind of ended up with that flavor of suffering. You know, one of the things I like for people to understand is that over time, if you take lots of experiences like that little girl, even positive experiences where you're constantly sort of addressed um, in, and treated in terms of your body, then your body becomes a really important thing um, to pay attention to. You know, your body mm -hmm. becomes a signal as to what good or bad things come to happen in your life um, and can, can really limit your functioning from there if that persists. You know, the, um, the, 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 the suggestion I think that we, we want, um, you know, the thing that we want, the ideal thing that we would hope for, I think for most of uh, our, our kids or our culture is for an emphasis on body that's, that's practical and, and maybe even dispassionate at best, you know, that our bodies are one aspect of ourselves. Um, there are many different aspects of ourselves that they, the way that they are important should be in direct sort of contingency ways, you know, Know, if, if I need to be able to walk up and down the stairs, then it's important that my body can walk up and down the stairs. And, you know, if, uh, if it's important to me to be able to keep up with my kids, then, then maybe losing some weight, you know, is important to me. Mm. Um, you know, if it's, uh, if, 
if I know that I'm going to gain access to certain professional settings by dressing in a particular way, then that's what's important there. You know, that's why attending to the body would be important. So really pragmatic and like I said, almost dispassionate, um, you know, ways of relating to the body as just part of the experience. Okay. So it becomes an element in someone's life rather than consuming. And that's a really um, important piece of information that it's not just negative feedback we might receive about our body that can influence you know, uh, these challenging experiences later on in our lives, but this possible accumulation of even positive feedback about one's body and that association that builds about what it means to play the piano while it is being cute, for instance. Absolutely. If my ultimate sort of goal, if everything is, um, is evaluated, you know, by how it changes my experience of my body, yeah. and that's it you know, then um, that really becomes the, the, uh, the standard by which everything is evaluated. And not only that, but it can also be the flavor that all of my suffering takes. So if I have had this experience, let's say I'm a college student and over 21 years, the emphasis has really been on my appearance. Um, and, you know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's on maintaining a positive experience and that feels very accessible. Um, you know, maybe it's on avoiding a negative experience and I'm constantly sort of changing Chasing, being able to look good enough or be thin enough. You know, people will report experiences like um, the time when they feel that the most is when other stressors happen. An example might be if I'm really struggling in stats and I get a test fact for a, a, a statistics test that I studied for, you know, tremendously and really thought I did a good job on and I get it back and I've, I have a failing grade. You know, in that moment, if my suffering often takes the flavor of body stuff, I'm likely to report something like, I feel really fat right now. You know, instead of feeling disappointed in my performance from, you know, three days ago that I really can't do anything about, I might experience, you know, feeling dumb, for example, or, or like a loser. You know, it kind of takes the form of a familiar threat. It takes the form of my body image distress. It takes the form of, you know, for that particular example, if I'm someone that's chasing thinness, it takes the form of me feeling fat. And this is adaptive in sort of a toxic way, because of course I know what to do about that. When I feel fat, I skip dinner, I, you know, go to the gym for three hours. I, you know, um, only sleep a few hours so I can wake up and go back to the gym. You know, I restrict, I over-exercise, um, I avoid my friends. I've got the response to feeling fat down. And even though it's toxic, even though it harms me in the long run, I'm able to get that short-term relief you know, mm -hmm. over that next few hours. By chasing thin, I'm able to get that short-term relief from feeling fat, even though the problem to begin with was actually about stats. So, you know, what I would want for a client in that same situation, I mean, somebody that had just gotten a failing grade, you know, has really been struggling with chasing thin and has that immediate experience like, oh, I feel fat, um, is for them to notice that, you know, to be with that in the moment, to um, really be with that whole experience, the thought of it, you know, the way that it makes me feel about myself, the urges to act that come up, if any physical sensations, I mean, I might start to feel some tension in my body or suddenly be acutely aware of how my clothes feel and my, my skin, you know, I would want that all to fill in and then the rest of the world, okay, you know, where am I? I'm in statistics class, you know, what's going on? 
fantastic class of all things. Um, stopping to notice maybe that, you know, I'm interested in graduate training and I've been thinking a lot about going on to grad school and stats just makes me feel so dumb and like I might never have access to that. You know, maybe the action implications for this fear about my future and this, this fat feeling that tends to kind of swallow everything else up. You know, maybe the action implications are something like, uh, you know, it, emailing to see if I can find a statistics tutor um, and taking some time to look at how I studied, you know, maybe making a meeting with the professor. If I'm caught up at the gym, <laughs> right, um, restricting and, and exercising instead of emailing my stats professor or, you know, figuring out if, how much stats is going to be part of the, the graduate training that I'm seeking, um, you know, that I'm, I'm missing out. I mean, I'm, I am not directing my life um, towards the things that I care about. Instead, I'm letting my experience with my body really, really drive the bus, you know, really come in and take over. You describe really this idea that maybe almost diverting from that feeling of discomfort around the thoughts that might come up around not being able to pursue, you know, graduate school or feeling dumb or whatever it may be that we might divert to something that's more familiar, like these feelings around fatness that we know how to control. So there's a sense of power powerness there in that we have an action we can do we can go to the gym versus a sense of powerlessness when it's something that's less familiar and we're not sure exactly what avenue to pursue absolutely and and that feels so important to say because i i think that Folks tend to um, to be embarrassed if their struggles, you know, are body sort of related. Um, I think folks tend to judge others. Like, for example, individuals who struggle with eating disorders tend to say, like, you know, how vain that you would worry about your body, or, or, um, or boy, I wish I was anorexic and could restrict it to that extent. You know, not really understanding that this is just the flavor of the suffering that everybody has. You know, humans are really, really good at suffering in lots of different situations, and we tend to suffer about what's familiar. We tend to very early on, uh, pretty early on in our life, have kind of a flavor that our suffering takes, and then a response that we make to that. The problem is, of course, that oftentimes both of those things are toxic. The uh, the flavor that our, our suffering takes really obscures things that might be actually more actionable and meaningful to us. Um, and the actions that we take tend to get us further and further away from how we want to be living um, instead of getting us closer and closer to the things that matter to us. And listeners can grab your book, you know, How to Live with Your Body and Other Things You Hate, but in there you describe, and you've kind of been alluding to them and, you know, directly actually contacting them through our interview today, but these four opportunities that someone has for change and that being, you know, being present, being able to see beyond your thoughts, accepting experiences, and then getting to know you, which would be back to the values um, and understanding where someone's going. But I guess as we start to wrap things up, I don't know whether that's a nice area to lead into a bit of a takeaway, something that someone who is experiencing some challenges with body image might be able to action to create a bit more space in their life or what would be, you know, maybe the first step someone could take towards this journey. Yeah. So, so, you know, I would kind of consider the first step, somebody being willing to say, boy, that sounds a lot like me. Um, <laughs> True. <laughs> First step, honestly, and I say that because I think that that's hard. I think it's easy to kind of look from the outside and go, whoo, I'm glad 
her like that. Um, but it can be, it can be hard to recognize ourselves in the stories like, like the ones that I'm telling today. So I think the first step is really recognizing ourselves. Um, and then the second step, um, which comes, sometimes comes by surprise for most people, I would say is actually asking ourselves, you know, who is it that I want to be and how are these struggles interfering with that? You know, what are the things that matter most to me that my experience in my body tends to take or interfere with? Um, you know, who is it that if, if I was living my life, you know, effectively and, and true to kind of uh, my best self, really thriving over the next five years, you know, what would you see? What would you see me doing? How would I be spending my time? What would folks be able to say about me who are aware of how I spend my time and energy? So I think that first step is really in that values domain. You know, what really, really matters to me? And the reason why I say that's that first step um, is because it's from there that we can then dignify the hard work of getting in contact with the moment, you know, of, mm -hmm. of paying attention to not just the bad feelings that are showing up, but everything else that's going on to looking past um, our thoughts, you know, to um, being able to accept what is and being able to really relate to ourselves and to other people in effective and flexible ways. So value sort of ends up being the criterion um, that tells us when it might be important. The question to do each of those four things. So the question that I sort of ask people in the book in, in a much longer, more complicated way is after establishing what it is that you care about after you feel really clear about what the values are that you're going to be working on in this area that your body image tends to take from you you know the, the next step being um, you know getting in contact with the present moment the question that I ask people is something like um, what are situations in which um, your body interferes with you being able to get present in a way that negatively impacts your values you know and the idea of looking sort of past your thoughts of being able to let the whole rest of that mental world fill in has been kind of how I'm saying it today, um, you know, would be what are moments when a particular thought, memory, you know, um, label about your body completely takes over in a way that interferes um, with your values. Um, same thing for acceptance. You know, what are times when your unwillingness to have your experience of your body interferes with your values? And then finally, what are times that um, your way of experiencing yourself and other people physically um, interferes with you being able to pursue the things that you care about? So in each of those, the metric for kind of how am I doing is always going to be those personally held values, the enforced sort of skills that we can build in the presence of that. That is incredible. So I think, you know, people listening can go, okay, well, is this something I identify with recognizing perhaps oneself? And if they, they think, okay, this, this is sounding familiar. There's something about this that's eerily familiar. Then it's going to be maybe taking some time to journal or do some values work or pick up your book and get really clear on exactly what these steps and processes are. And I will have uh, a link to your book in the show notes. So listeners will be able to very easily access it there. How else can they get in contact with you, Emily? 
Yeah, sure. Easy, easy to find. Um, so um, all of my information is up on the ACBS website. That's uh, contextualscience.org. And that's the website for the Association of Contextual Behavioral Science, which I'm really involved in. Um, so all my information is there. Um, it's also on the University of Louisiana at Lafayette website. So uh, psychology.louisiana.edu. Um, so I've got lots of information there. Um, about the, the graduate program that I coordinate. Um, and then my email is just emilysandoz at louisiana.edu. And I love to talk about this stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly uh, become my passion over the years. I would be open to any uh, feedback, questions, or concerns. That's fantastic. And you've written a number of books in the area as well. So I'll have links to all of, all of the information you've just described in regards to contact avenues and all of that in the show notes. Notes. But I think that's so generous that this is obviously such an area of passion and that you're open to people getting in contact and reaching out should that be something that they feel would be beneficial to their, you know, next steps. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down today and, you know, have a really delightful conversation. I feel like the time has just gone so quickly because this is clearly an area that you are so knowledgeable and passionate about. And I would really encourage listeners to grab your book and to figure out those ways that they can make change in their life and live a life that is rich and meaningful and find that peace that you described through clear direction and orientation. Thanks so much, Caitlin. I hope that you found this interview with Dr. Sandus as informative as I did. I think the concept of body image flexibility and how we can support the cultivation of a sense of self beyond body image is particularly powerful. As mentioned, you can reach out to Dr. Sandus herself via email, which you'll find in the show notes. And I certainly recommend checking out Dr. Sandus's book, Living With Your Body and Other Things You Hate, how you can let go of your struggle with body image using acceptance and commitment therapy. While if you're struggling with bulimia specifically, then you might also benefit from her book, The Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Bulimia. I do just want to make note that if you are experiencing a clinical disorder, you know, like bulimia or anorexia nervosa, it is really important that you reach out for professional support. These disorders have significant impact on your emotional well-being as well as your physical health. So there can be life consequences and I'd really encourage you to find the connections, the support you need. This said, any professionals listening who are interested in using this approach to support their clients could really benefit from another book that Dr. Sandoz has co-authored called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Eating Disorders a process-focused guide to treating anorexia and bulimia. You can find links to all of these books and further information in the show notes at drcaitlin.com. Thank you again so much for listening in today, and I'll be looking forward to connecting with you next Wednesday, where you'll get to learn more about yoga psychology, Buddhist psychology, how this relates to acceptance and commitment therapy and relational flame therapy, all with the amazing Nellie Martin. All right, have a wonderful week. I am wishing you well. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect 
find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.